Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week you and I take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. And this week, we are joined by Knight First Amendment Institute litigation director, Alex Abdo. We talk about the intersections between free speech and privacy. And we also discuss the Knight Institute's lawsuit challenging President Donald Trump's blocking of his critics on Twitter. It's a high-profile lawsuit in which the Institute actually recently prevailed in a 3-0 decision at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. But before we dive into that, a bit of Alex's background Before joining the Knight Institute, he was a senior attorney at the ACLU, where he worked on speech and privacy issues, including litigation surrounding the National Security Administration's surveillance practices. And a lot of this podcast is actually a discussion of, as I mentioned, the intersections between free speech and privacy, and we get into the NSA litigation a little bit as well. Alex went to law school at Yale, and after law school, he did some clerkships, including one at the 11th Circuit. We spoke in late July at FIRE's Philadelphia headquarters, and a video version of this interview can be found on FIRE's YouTube channel, youtube.com slash thefireorg. Now, let's get on to the show. Alex, thanks for coming to FIRE's headquarters today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a little bit of a busy morning for you, hasn't it? It has. I was talking to your very engaged and inquisitive interns. Yeah, as I was just telling you, I was an intern about... 10 years ago, and our offices were nothing like this. We didn't get lunches like they got. <laughs> so uh, thanks for coming down here from New York, right? You're at the Knight First Amendment Institute? That's right, up at Columbia University. And before that, you were at the ACLU. That's right, for about eight years, for um, basically the entire Obama administration and a little bit of the Bush administration on the front end. And what was your focus there? For the first four or five years, the focus was mainly on post-9-11 treatment of detainees. So lawsuits, challenging... Uh, the government's use of the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques or So torture. not the Guantanamo Bay stuff? Some stuff related to Guantanamo, and I did some uh, monitoring of the commissions, as lawyers at the ACLU did at the time, and uh-huh. still do actually. Uh, so would go down and, and monitor some of the proceedings, but mostly focused on treatment issues. So you know, transparency related to treatment and uh, actual lawsuits filed on behalf of victims of uh, some of the intelligence agencies' torture programs. And you did a little bit of privacy work as well, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. The The last you know, four years of my time there, I shifted um, focuses a bit toward NSA surveillance at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that subject obviously had a huge change in terrain after the 2013 Snowden disclosures. But you were working on it before then. I was working on it beforehand. And you know, really to work on surveillance, NSA surveillance issues before Snowden, you weren't actually working on surveillance issues. What you're working on is legal standing, you know, trying to mm-hmm. demonstrate that your clients were entitled to sue uh, the government to challenge the surveillance that you thought you were challenging. And, yeah. you know, the main case that we were litigating before ended up, um, you know, being five years of litigation that resulted in a 5-4 decision by the Supreme Court holding that our clients did not have standing. And, you know, that was a few months before the Snowden disclosures, which changed, you know, everything going forward. Yeah, I'm kind of curious how that changed things. So what did you know before the Snowden disclosures and what didn't you know before the Snowden disclosures? In short, what changed? Yeah, so it really, there are changes on two axes. So in terms of what we knew, we knew hardly anything prior to the Snowden disclosures about what the NSA was in fact doing. 
the program that we were focused on challenging was uh, one uh, that the NSA was running under Section 702 of FISA, which mm-hmm. is the warrantless wiretapping authority that the NSA uh, has. That and con- FISA's Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we knew what the statute said. And the statute spoke in broad generalities about giving the NSA authority to conduct surveillance that was targeted at foreigners abroad. But it didn't say anything about the way in which the government could carry out that surveillance. All of that was left to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISA court, um, to approve once the government came to that court with procedures, targeting procedures and minimization procedures that it would use to implement the surveillance. So that's all we knew. We knew that we knew the statute, and we didn't. And you know, didn't know what was happening in these courts because the proceedings are private. Correct? That's that's right. And um, occasionally, that court would publish uh, a significant legal opinion. Uh, but I, up to that day, I forget how many opinions they had published. I think you could probably count them on one hand. Since then, they've published, you know, maybe a dozen more. Um, so that's what we knew in terms of the actual surveillance that was going on, almost nothing. We knew absolutely nothing about another surveillance program that turned out to be um, the one that Americans reacted to most, you know, with the most outrage after the Snowden disclosures. And that was a program under which the NSA was collecting uh, Americans' call records on an ongoing daily basis. Um, we, we had no inkling uh, that that was taking place. So that was the, that one axis, what we knew about the facts on the ground. The other thing that changed is this question of legal standing. Um, prior to the Snowden disclosures, we could not prove that anyone in particular had been subjected to NSA surveillance. And we argued that that didn't matter. We argued that we could still challenge their surveillance on behalf of people uh, who were the most likely people to be swept up in the NSA's surveillance. Yeah. And ultimately, the Supreme Court disagreed with us in a 5-4 decision. Uh, in February of 2013. And then a few months later, Snowden happens. All of a sudden, we learn a lot more about um, the NSA's call records program, about which we knew nothing. We learn a lot more about Section 702 of FISA and how the government is implementing it. It turns out they were implementing it through PRISM and Upstream, which were two surveillance programs. They're very different, but two important surveillance programs. Uh, And the most significant legal effect is that all of a sudden we could sue. So the very first order that Snowden uh, that the that the journalists working with the Snowden documents published was one directing Verizon Business to turn over the records of its customers uh, on an ongoing daily basis to the NSA. And it turned out that the uh, ACLU was a customer of Verizon Business. Oh, so you had standing. So the ACLU had standing, not yeah. even just on behalf of a client, but the organization had standing. And the disclosure came, I think, on a Wednesday evening, June 5th of 2013. And the following Tuesday, we filed a lawsuit on behalf of the ACLU and the New York affiliate um, challenging the lawfulness of the NSA's call records And did you program. get over that standing hurdle? We did. The government still made a standing argument. It was a different yeah, one. I assume. They still made a standing argument, but the court rejected it. Um, and that was, I, f- I think I'm correct, the first time in a civil suit challenging NSA surveillance uh, where a court found that the, the plaintiff had standing. Uh, in the criminal cases, the government occasionally discloses that it's monitored you because mm-hmm. they're required to by statute. If they want to use the fruits of their surveillance against you, they have to, they have to tell you that. Um, but that pretty much gives the government um, the discretion to decide if and when its surveillance will be challenged and by whom. Um, and uh, you know, we thought a civil suit was very important because uh, the statute uh, that we're challenging raised a lot of issues that were not likely to get addressed in the context of a criminal proceeding. And what was the effect substantively from the lawsuit? Were you able to change any of the NSA programs, mm-hmm. uh, r- get them ruled unconstitutional, or did that happen on the regulatory side through public pressure? Yeah, a bit of both. So um, the, the first lawsuit that we challenged, challenging that call records program, 
resulted in a Second Circuit ruling holding that the uh, program was illegal, that it violated the statute that the government claimed authorized it. Uh, and three weeks later, I think that was on May 7th of 2015, the Second Circuit issued that decision. Uh, June 1st or 2nd, Congress passes the USA Freedom Act, which was the first real reform of NSA surveillance authority since 1978, which is when the main statutes authorizing NSA surveillance were passed. Um, and the combination it was a bit of a one-two punch. The court said it was illegal, and Congress reacted by uh, ending bulk collection under that uh, legal authority and uh, under several other legal authorities that were susceptible to the same interpretation. Um, and uh, that was very pleasing to see. You know, one thing that was a bit disappointing is that the public appetite for reform uh, kind of ran out with that program. And uh, I mentioned the Section 702, and Section 702 is a program that we continue to challenge mm-hmm. uh, in court. Um, and there are actually a handful of lawsuits challenging it. But the courts have yet to rule uh, in a comprehensive way on the lawfulness of uh, the the surveillance that we're challenging there. Um, and the standing fight still goes on there because we don't have quite the same disclosure that we had with respect to the call records program. Yeah. Well, I asked you all of this to kind of preface a larger conversation I want to have with you about the intersection between free speech and the right to privacy. And you wrote this very interesting paper called Why Rely on the Fourth Amendment to Do the Work of the First Amendment, in which you essentially argue that there is a speech implication in a lot of the privacy debates that we have and the privacy concerns that we have. And I think it's encapsulated best by these two sentences that you have in your piece in which you draw parallels between what we do in our private and public lives and what's called the observer effect in physics. Uh, unobserved, a citizen's thought, like particles in physics, follow their own path. But the more closely watched they become, we become, the more it is possible that our paths are determined by the very act of observation. So the idea being that we act differently when people observe us. And so you argue earlier in the piece that if we want to engage in dissent, that often that begins in private before it manifests itself in public. And to be observed in private would deter our past that would otherwise perhaps manifest themselves in public. But the problem is that a lot of these debates about privacy happens in the Fourth Amendment context where that right's commonly understood. And for a number of reasons, the rights aren't as well protected in the Fourth Amendment context. They get a lower level of scrutiny Mm -hmm. and they just protect a narrower category of citizen activity or expression, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So what got you first thinking about this? Was there a particular case? Because it's not an argument that's often made in yeah. even First Amendment or free speech circles, but it's one that anyone who's read George Orwell's 1984 and seen how, uh, what was his name, Winston Smith, yeah. changes his activity based, and what he says, based on the observation from Big Brother. Yeah. Uh, now, maybe that, that's fiction, of course, but I think it rings true. Any of us who were children and acted differently when our parents parents were watching us as opposed to when our parents weren't watching us can have sympathy to the argument that you're making here. Yeah, it, it all, I mean, it starts with a very common sense observation that is certainly not, um, uh, you know, mine. That, like, like you said, we act differently when we're watched. People close the curtain when they uh, are at home in their living room. They close the bathroom door before they use the bathroom. They use passwords for their, uh, for their email accounts and their phones. Um, and it's all for a very, the very obvious reason that we change our conduct when we're being watched. But the reason why I wrote this piece is that I became frustrated with the way that people understood the privacy debate. Um, 
One thing that you often heard in the wake of the Snowden disclosures was that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Yeah. And I find that uh, argument unpersuasive for a lot of reasons. But one of the most significant uh, reasons for me personally that I find it unpersuasive is that it discounts the broader importance of privacy. Privacy is a precondition of a lot of speech. It's a precondition of dissent. It's a precondition of uh, intellectual autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have a space where you can experiment with ideas. And, you know, I remember uh, in college, it may be very different today for kids, the way they document their lives uh, on social media. And I wonder what my experience would be like in college today. But um, I I remember clearly having what I thought of as, um, you know, kind of closed spaces where I could with friends debate what today I think of as some of the most controversial questions, but I could debate them freely because I knew that uh, those conversations weren't going to come back to bite me, that nobody was going to take them out of context, nobody was going to misunderstand uh, what I meant or what they meant, and we could we could discuss openly and freely in this unobserved, uh, you know, college dorm room um, with maybe a few beers on the side, and uh, that was critical in my own intellectual development, and I suspect it's critical in the intellectual development of a lot of people. This is the ability to talk yeah. unobserved, and. That, to me, what was, is what was missing from uh, the privacy debate post-Snowden, was a real recognition that what was at stake was not just the privacy of uh, uh, American citizens or people more broadly, um, and not just the privacy of those who claimed they had nothing to hide, but it was uh, the sanctity of our intellectual environment itself, our ability to be free in coming up with our thoughts um, and sharing them with others, and eventually, if necessary, fomenting dissent. Yeah. Well, I think skeptics of your argument might argue, well, yeah, you're free to express whatever you want, but the con- you're not immune from the consequences of that. Yeah, and, that's right. You know, it's not truly pro- private because you're actually sharing it, for example, in your study group with your study partners. And this gets, speaks to the kind of the third party doctrine, which we can get into. Yeah. Uh, the government holds essentially that if you share information with anyone, then it's no longer private. Uh, and John Milton, actually, you quote him in your piece, you say, John Milton described the prior restraint of publication of the abortion of one's intellectual offspring. The interesting thing about that quote is that while he didn't like prior restraints, he thought the government could do anything that it yeah, wanted after right. it was published. Yeah, so you right. can say whatever you want. You know, let's not abort your intellectual offspring. But in Areopagitica, he says, judge it for what it is. Judge it for what it is. Yeah. And he didn't mind the censorship or punishment after the publication. Now, it's not an argument I'm sympathetic to, but it's an argument that's made and that the courts have sort of bought into, correct? They they have in part, but you know I, I want to you know be careful too about my own argument. Mm-hmm. I'm not arguing that um, uh, because we need space to express dissent and develop dissenting views, uh, that everything that follows from the expression of those views or the dissent we hope to provoke mm-hmm. is protected. It may or may not be depending yeah, on the course. circumstances, and obviously, you know the the norms on free speech and protection in uh, uh, you know. Th- uh, at the time that Milton was opposing the licensing scheme, uh, you know that that in Britain, the, in Britain yeah. very different than they are today. Yeah, um, of course, f- for obvious reasons. Um, but I think the the basic point is the same: is that um, uh, you need that initial you know private space to develop the views. And if the government can influence that area, if they can prevent you from birthing the idea, if they can prevent you even from conceiving of the idea so as to birth it. 
then it will have undermined the whole premise of representative democracy, the idea that the people are the source of the power. If the people are the source of the power, then the people need to be sovereign of their of their minds. Um, and uh, overreaching surveillance uh, inserts government into uh, into people's lives in a way that um, historically wasn't possible, and that I think um, uh, undermined that important separation between the sovereignty we all have of our thoughts um, and and government power. Yeah, and the Supreme Court has sort of understood this. You speak to the seminal uh, NAACP v. Alabama case in which the state of Alabama tried to gain access to the NAACP's donor roles, presumably to try and out them. Uh, and the Supreme Court said you can't do that because it's a violation of privacy, but also free speech, right? Yeah, it, was, it was a First Amendment case, ultimately. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they, the Supreme Court held that the chilling effect of requiring the NAACP to disclose what, in essence, what, you know, was its membership mm-hmm. would be obvious, especially given the context of the time. You, you know, the, the Alabama attorney general was nominally going after the NAACP for violating, I think it was local rules on taxation. I forget the exact context, mm-hmm. but it was pretty clear what was going on. You know, they were targeting they had an NAACP. ulterior motive. Yeah, they were trying to suppress dissent. They were trying to suppress the NAACP's um, efforts to advocate for racial equality and racial justice. And the court rightly recognized that that's a, free, that's a First Amendment problem, that this surveillance tool, this subpoena for records, although, you know, you might think of it first and foremost as a privacy question, is also a free speech one. And they analyzed it that way. And um, the problem is that since that string of cases from the civil rights era— courts have shied away from analyzing uh, surveillance or the lawfulness of surveillance in free speech terms. They've mostly analyzed those questions in privacy in privacy terms. There's been some cases that have parallels to that NAACP v. Alabama case. In particular, I'm, I'm recalling one, and I'm not too familiar with the facts, but out in California, where the state of California is trying to subpoena uh, 501c4 groups, um, so-called, I think some of them are so-called dark money groups, uh, to try and get their donor roles for what they argue is one purpose, but the the defendants or the plaint actually the plaintiffs argue is another purpose. I'm not too familiar with the case, and I don't know how it ultimately turned out. But it seems like for some, that's still an open question. That sort of thing is still yeah. You you still see in the campaign finance space. You see it a little bit. That's right. You still see kind of vestiges of that line of cases mm-hmm. in today's decision making. Courts still will um, uh, scrutinize these narrow sorts of demands for identifying information, basically demands that would unmask anonymous donors or speakers um, or members. They still analyze those in free speech terms, but they haven't extended that logic to to other surveillance tools. Uh, So NSA surveillance, for example, uh, we've argued in court, uh, should be thought of as a First Amendment problem and not just a Fourth Amendment one. But the response of courts has generally been if the surveillance meets the demands of the Fourth Amendment, if it's based upon, if it satisfies the warrant and probable cause requirements, or maybe if it satisfies the exceptions to those requirements, then that's enough for First Amendment purposes too. Hmm. Uh, and that's what I was mainly, that's what the piece mainly objects to, yeah. is the conflation of these two, what I think of as related but independent rights. Yeah, you have this line or these two sentences in your piece in which you say that Fourth Amendment doctrine tends to focus narrowly on individual harms, whereas First Amendment doctrine accounts for collective or societal ones. The Supreme Court has said many times that Fourth Amendment rights are personal rights, which, like some other constitutional rights, may not be vicariously asserted. So you can't make the chilling effect argument in the Fourth Amendment context that 
really is the argument you need to make if you're concerned about the chilling effect of broad surveillance, right? That's right. And you, you also can't make what is the equivalent of listen, a listener's rights claim in the Fourth Amendment context. Mm, yeah. so, you know, so one important recognition in the First Amendment context is if you're a, list, a willing listener and you think that there are speakers out there who are being chilled from speaking with you or, or talking publicly, you can bring a claim on their behalf as a willing listener. And that's an important protection against the kind of obvious dilemma that chilled speakers are in. If they're legitimately chilled, you can't really expect them to file suit. Um, otherwise, you know, you'd be very suspicious of their Frederick claim that Douglas they're chilled. Frederick made this moral argument, too, in his 1960 essay, A Plea for Free Speech in Boston, which he said free speech is uh, you know, one side of a two-sided coin, essentially, that's that right. there's the right of the speaker and then the, all the, to speak and then the right of the listener to listener uh, to listen you can think of it in the context of books too i mean the idea that you burn for example book burning is an affront to the author of that book but also an affront to the person who would want to read that book and to gather the information from it and any authoritarian government sort of understands that That's intuitively right. and and the 4th amendment historically though hasn't recognized uh, that there are two sides of the coin of the right being protected and the result is that uh, the government can distort uh, you know, c- can distort discourse um, through its conduct that uh, impacts privacy, um, even though if you were to apply First Amendment standards to that same conduct, courts would, I think, more fully appreciate the consequences of allowing the government to engage in whatever the challenge conduct is. Yeah, so um, there was a case, what was it, two terms ago, the Carpenter case? That's right. And how has that changed the calculation here? Well, so it's it's broad, it's interesting. So, you know, one thing I noted in the paper— I, uh, I argue that there's a this mi- was pre-Carpenter. It's pre-Carpenter that yeah, and I you know Carpenter was being briefed at the time that I wrote this paper, so I, I discussed Carpenter um, and I pointed to it, but you know I pointed to it in the context of highlighting the fact that there is a mismatch between um, the Fourth Amendment protections and the First Amendment protections. Uh, the Fourth Amendment uh, uh, is often held not to apply to a particular form of government surveillance for one reason or another. And one uh, reason is that uh, you've disclosed the information you argue is private to a third party. And the courts often hold that if you disclose the information to a third party, you can no longer expect privacy, and this is the third party doctrine. Um, but the same is not true on the First Amendment side. The fact that uh, uh, you know, information you've disclosed to somebody else may reduce your expectation of privacy in it doesn't necessarily reduce the First Amendment consequences of allowing the government to monitor that communication. Um, and so I pointed to this as a mismatch between the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment and a reason to be skeptical of the claim that some courts make that surveillance that satisfies the Fourth Amendment also satisfies the First. Um, since then, Carpenter's come out, and it has uh, essentially begun the rethinking of the third-party doctrine. It held that the, government's, uh, the government needed to get a warrant before it acquired seven days or more of somebody's cell phone location information. Uh, a, a historic ruling, a, a very, you know, an important ruling that will change privacy law, I think, for decades to come. And it, I think, reduces the mismatch a little bit between the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't go nearly far enough to address what I think of as still, you know, the, they're just distinct amendments. They cover different things. But they're, they're you know, as, as I was saying at the beginning, they're the standards applied to them are different. For example, and you point out in the piece, under the the First Amendment, the government must use the least intrusive means possible in pursuing its interest. In the Fourth Amendment case, that's that's not the case. Right. Correct? They just have to act reasonably. Yeah, yeah, 
And, and there are a lot of differences between the first and the fourth. So, you know, I, I point to the fact that um, in the Fourth Amendment context, there's often this divide and conquer approach that courts take. That um, So courts have held it is not a violation of the Fourth Amendment for the government to acquire the uh, web address of one website that you visited. And because it's not a violation for them to acquire one address you visited, it's not a violation for them to acquire the sum total of every website you've ever visited. And the First Amendment, you know, a court analyzing that uh, kind of surveillance on the First Amendment would say that's nonsense. Of course, there's a qualitative difference between the government knowing whether you read this one article on uh, the New York Times' site and knowing your entire reading history. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a difference between the two, and people would be more likely to be chilled from reading what they want to read online if they knew that the government uh, could acquire without any process whatsoever you know, a list of everything you've read. Yeah, and it wasn't forced to justify its actions in the same way you are in the First Amendment context. Right, right. So you're at the Knight First Amendment Institute, and have you been there since its founding? Basically, yeah. I, uh, I started on in January in 2017, right about when it started. Yeah, and if I'm recalling correctly, your purpose is to defend uh, First Amendment freedoms in the digital age. That's right. And is your focus on impact litigation, or are you looking for discrete cases to enforce the law as it currently stands? Mostly. So we have, you know, we have a, li- a litigation program and a research program. And mm-hmm. on the litigation side, the, imp- the focus is on impact litigation. Uh, we want to identify areas where uh, it's time for courts to either apply old principles to new technologies mm-hmm. or to think about old principles differently in light of new technologies. Um, and th- that's an important uh, reason that the Institute was founded. On the research side, the work is very different. You know, we're uh, not necessarily advocates on the research side. We are sponsors of research and public thinking that we think will advance public understanding of the issues that we care about. And so we'll sponsor research that we might end up disagreeing with eventually once Mm -hmm. we've had a chance to think about it ourselves, uh, but that we think is important to help, uh, you know, both the staff of the Institute and others kind of sort their way through some of these, these hard challenges. Just to give one example, we have a symposium coming up in November on the technology companies, monopoly power, and public discourse. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're intrigued by some of the recent suggestions that uh, that we ought to think about the influence that Facebook and others have on public discourse as really a problem with competition policy, with antitrust policy or monopoly policy, and not so much a problem of content regulation, which is how some people want to think about it. And we're intrigued by that. We don't yeah. know what the answer is, um, but it's, uh, it seems like an important conversation and one that we are positioned to contribute to, and so we're hosting a symposium on that question. As far as impact litigation goes, are you, you know, you look through the staff, and a lot of you have privacy experience. You come yeah. from, a lot of you have come from, like Jamil, I believe, had, Jamil Jaffer, who's the executive director, That's right. uh, comes from a background where he litigated a lot of privacy cases, also at the ACLU. So are you looking for impact litigation that tries to bridge this gap that exists between the, f- the Fourth and the First Amendment and how the two amendments are applied and, and viewed, more or less? We, we are, absolutely. You know, we have a number of priorities, and one of them is convincing courts to rethink of uh, surveillance disputes as First Amendment disputes, too. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's a conceitedly a, a long-form task. <laughs> um, and but you might have five votes on this court, right? Because Gorsuch is pretty, pretty uh, sympathetic to some of these privacy arguments. I think that he is. Whether he whether he's sympathetic to them when framed as First Amendment questions, I think remains to be seen. True. It, yeah. may, it may be that Roberts, too, is, you know, he, he's described himself as one of the most ardent First Amendment supporters on the court. 
Um, and, you know, I think the reality is that uh, there are a variety of ways to be a First Amendment supporter, and, mm-hmm. and it all sort of depends on what your vision is of the First Amendment. Yeah, um, <laughs> your vision of the First Amendment does not encompass what you and I might right. view as First Amendment concerns, then right. it's a narrow view of the First Amendment. But, but you're right generally, I think, that, you know, uh, the First Amendment tends to be less partisan in it's hard to predict someone's outcome in a, a first amendment case based mm-hmm. on their nomination, you know, the nominating yeah. party. And so, uh, we're hopeful that courts will recognize this relationship between free speech and privacy in a doctrinal way. And there's reason to think that they will, which is that the kind of surveillance that the government can engage in today is dramatically different than the sort of surveillance courts have considered historically. And the free speech implications of that surveillance are, uh, so much more salient to how people react to the surveillance mm-hmm. um, than in the past that I think, you know, courts are, you know, will be persuaded. And, and I think, in fact, the Carpenter decision itself is a reflection of that fact. I think the court reached to broaden what it had historically thought, you know, what some had historically thought of as the Fourth Amendment's reach, in part to accommodate free speech concerns. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's, you know, I think there are costs of protecting the First Amendment through the Fourth Amendment, even if the coverage is the same, namely what you were pointing to earlier, the standards are different and the way that courts think about the harms are different. And so I think there's independent value in uh, uh, making sure that analysis takes place on the First Amendment side of the ledger. Uh, but the Fourth Amendment, you know, the, the court's decision, the Fourth Amendment decision in Carpenter, I think, is a reflection of the fact that there are real concerns with overreaching surveillance for free speech that we need to be considering. Well, since you all do research have you might that you might already be considering this. Yeah. Consider doing real uh, studies on the effects that surveillance has on the activities of individuals. If you're studying humans and how they interact with for example an eyeball on the wall and an eyeball not on the wall, yeah. you would need to put it through an institutional review board, but it's these sorts of studies often that that are cited in Supreme Court cases. That's right. Yeah. That uh, that can move the needle in the direction in this case, in the direction of uh, greater First Amendment protections for uh, surveillance. Yeah. No. We, yes, and we have. You know, we, we've uh, so far we've hosted two public uh, events relating to free speech and surveillance. Mm-hmm. The first of which we tried to ask the question: What is it that's holding courts back mm-hmm. from recognizing that surveillance is a First Amendment question? And we had scholars who focused on that question, Fourth and First Amendment scholars on the panel. Uh, moderated by Jack Balkan at Yale, you know, asking this question, what's holding courts back? Uh, and then the second panel was meant to build on that because the, the conclusion of that was, you know, maybe unsurprisingly, more or less what you just said, which is courts want to see better evidence that uh, surveillance is having the effect that seems intuitive, that people are changing their behavior. Um, they want to see the empirical foundation for the chilling effect. And so the second panel we hosted was uh, with more social scientists um, and it was called Measuring the Chilling Effect. And it was uh, meant to survey the current state of social science understanding of the chilling effect to identify gaps for future research. And now we're looking into partnering with some uh, uh, of the folks who do this sort of research uh, in doing some more. But you know, this is conceitedly um, uh, it's a significant undertaking. And yeah. you know, we're, it's something that we're very motivated to do. But um, uh you need a, you need someone who knows how to do the methodology. That can That's right. Get, since it'd be there'd be human subjects, you'd need put it through an institutional review board. But That's these right. Are questions and you can also look for natural experiments, which some have done. You uh-huh. know, one of the the one of the most sophisticated studies that has been done was by a researcher named John Penny, who was uh, on our second panel, and he looked at 
the impact of the Snowden disclosures on readership of certain Wikipedia sites. And he studied particular sites that, um, the readership of particular sites that uh, you might associate with the U.S. government's um, surveillance interests. So sites relating to terrorism or to particular kind of foreign policy subjects that you might think the NSA would be interested in. And his research showed that there was a statistical, statistically significant and long-lasting decline in readership of those uh, that turned all on the Snowden disclosures or, you know, on June 5th, 2013, yeah. the day of the disclosures. So they're natural experiments that you can kind of run as well. And there may be more of those over time as more and more data is collected about these things. Yeah, well, I've experienced that too, because what was it back in like 2015, 2016, when ISIS was a big mm-hmm. topic of conversation, they were this 14 and 15, more or less, uh, they were taking over large swaths of Iraq and Syria. There was a lot of discussion in the news about their magazine, and I forget what the Inspire or something. Yeah, that's right, Inspire, yeah. And they were saying about how it's produced by people in the West, and it was very glitzy and well-made, and this is what was drawing people into their caliphate. And I was just curious as to what it looked like. What is this thing? What was the persuasive power that it had? And I would be remiss, sir. I'd be lying if I said I didn't think twice before trying to Google it. Yeah. Because presumably that's something the NSA is watching for people Googling for Inspire. But I just wanted to get that information for uh, educational purposes. Yeah. To yeah. hear what all the hullabaloo was about. And then if you're, you know, and then if you're a privacy nut like me, before Googling it, you'll actually open up a Tor browser to, mm-hmm. to use an anonymizing network to view it. And then you'll worry that you'll, your internet behavior will actually start to look like the internet behavior of people the NSA really cares about. Yeah. <laughs> um, trying to mask your your IP addresses. Um, yeah. I, you know, it, it's a very common sense. It, it shouldn't surprise anyone yeah. <laughs> that, that that's a human impulse. It just hasn't yet um, convinced courts to, to think of it that way. Speaking of courts, this is the last thing I wanted to talk with you about uh, before I let you go here. The Trump Twitter case. Yeah. What, it's uh, Knight Institute v. Trump, and you have standing to sue on. Did somebody in your organization get blocked or? Not, so the, the suit is on behalf of seven individuals who were blocked by Trump, none of whom work at the Institute. And it was yeah, also Blocked by Trump on Twitter. On yeah. Twitter. And then it was also on behalf of the Knight First Amendment Institute as, uh, as someone who follows Trump, the organization follows Trump, and wanted to uh, have access to an undistorted public forum surrounding his tweets, one not distorted by the blocking of critics. Hmm. Um, and so the court held that, uh, on standing, it held that the seven individual plaintiffs obviously had standing because they were blocked, and that the Knight and Sue had standing as a willing listener. Um, and then on the merits, it held that President Trump's blocking of his critics on Twitter violated the First Amendment. And this was this was reaffirmed when it was appealed to the Second Circuit, correct? That's right. That's right. So this is this is a big case. I mean, yeah, this this is, it, yeah. This sort of thing hasn't happened before. My first question when you filed it, my first instinct when you filed it was some skepticism because I had asked actually Eugene Volokh over at UCLA about this question in the context of virtual reality. Eugene is a very forward thinking thinker. He's looking at First Amendment questions in the context of virtual reality where he thinks many of us will live in the decades to come. And, I, and we talked about the consequences of blocking people within your virtual reality. And I asked him if there is a First Amendment concern there. And and he said no. And then I said, well, what if someone's holding a politician, for example, is holding their town hall in their virtual reality and they block you from from uh, participating in that? And he, he was skeptical of the First Amendment claim that would be made there. But then, you know, once you filed your suit and I think he thought about it more and the consequences of more, he came around to it. But I was skeptical too, because I was thinking, well, you know, there are, there are certain fora that politicians create which 
are limited in a certain sense. The press briefing, for example. Yeah. So, and I imagine that that's an argument the other side has made as well. And is the, you know, what's your response to that? I mean, is it that you can only fit so many people in a room in a press briefing? Well, interestingly, there's actually good case law on press briefings. That, you really? Know, the, the DC Circuit has held that if the um, if people are excluded from a press briefing on the basis of their views, if they're you know actively kicked out. For viewpoint discriminatory reasons, that can violate the First Amendment. And, and, and they, J- J- Acosta filed, yeah. uh, was about to file a lawsuit or something. Uh, in that yeah, case. and I think his, he had his credentials, you know, restored. But the, yeah. you know, the judge in that case expressed real skepticism of the government's argument. I think, in, in part, based on this DC Circuit precedent. Uh, precedent, I, I forget the name of it, but you know, in the in the Trump case, we thought it was a, a lot easier than those cases because the president made a concerted decision to use. Um, as a way of communicating with constituents in the country as a whole, a forum that has as its defining characteristic the fact that it's interactive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you wanted a one-way communication tool for talking to the nation without hosting interactive feedback from listeners, it'd be very easy. I mean, he has the White House website. He has um, uh, you know, uh, press briefings he can give where he's talking to a camera and nobody can ask him questions at that, at that time. Yeah. He has any number of tools he, you know, he can use to uh, to talk to the country without having that sort of feedback. But he chose Twitter. Uh, and I think he chose Twitter for a reason, which is that feedback in some ways amplifies his message, right? Yeah. He, 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 I think he delights, <laughs> delights mm-hmm. in, the, in the retweets and the mentions. And, um, and uh, there's a responsibility, though, that comes with uh, availing yourself of that interactive forum, which is that so long as it's state action— um, and so long as you're opening it up to the public at large, you've created a public forum. So the state action here is that he makes policy pronouncements on Twitter. Well, it's a, it's a little more complicated than that. So you know, the, the, the question is, when does a, a state actor, um, when are they acting in an official capacity and when are they acting in a private capacity? And courts have always analyzed that question in a functional way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's never been a, um, it's never been a, a kind of formalistic assessment of whether the government owns the thing that you're using or whether you own it or, or anything like that. It's always been a functional inquiry. Is what you're doing something that people would understand to be the state uh, doing it or you and you're uh, doing it in your private capacity? And we thought the answer to that question with respect to Trump's Twitter account was very obvious. Uh, he uh, he uh, had White House aides helping him run the account. So Dan Scavino, yeah. the social media director, getting paid by the government on the government's time to help run the account. He announces policy decisions on the account for the first time. He announces the firing and hiring of uh, his staff for the first time in the account. Makes he, threats against North Korea. Yeah, he actually engages in foreign diplomacy mm-hmm. uh, on the account. He refers to the statements as official uh, statements of, of the White House. He actually responded to a request from Congress um, for an answer to some series of questions by saying that he had answered them already on his Twitter thread and provided those mm. to, to Congress. So. That question to me was always easy with respect to President Trump's uh, Twitter account. I think it'll likely be harder in the context of other officials who aren't using it in so clearly an official way. And the courts will have to grapple with that in other contexts. Well, there was just a lawsuit filed uh, against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example. She has a practice of of violating, or not violating, of uh, blocking Twitter Twitter followers. And and, uh, I mean, you'd probably have to look at all the facts there, but I'm assuming public official who does engage on Twitter and uh, engages in a lot of political discussion. I, I, I don't follow, I'm not on Twitter very often, so yeah. I don't know how much on there is, is policy or how much of the Twitter account is managed by our staff, but... 
Yeah, you know, so I've looked at it only briefly. I haven't mm-hmm. done a close uh, a close look like the way I've done with the the Trump uh, with President Trump's account. My sense from my quick look is that it looks pretty official. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's right, then uh, she shouldn't be blocking people on the basis of viewpoint. That then raises, I think, the question that will be the focus of the next wave of litigation about social media blocking by public officials, which is, okay, these are public forums, but the courts have held that we can keep people out of public forums. We can, you know, we can moderate public forums so long as we adopt viewpoint neutral rules that are focused on the time and place and manner of So if of Trump's speech. not just vol- uh, blocking his critics, but he's blocking other people as well? I mean, that would be the viewpoint neutral They need to be viewpoint, analysis. yeah, they need to be viewpoint neutral, time, place, and manner restrictions. Or he could adopt subject matter limitations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, courts have recognized that one type of public forum is a, is a limited one in which the government sets the topic of conversation. And so you can think of the quintessential town hall and the subject for the day is healthcare in city X. We're not here to talk about the schools. If you want to talk about the schools, we're going to we're going to take you, you know, we're going to turn off the microphone. And courts as hell, that's fine. If you set the the terms of the, you know, the the topic of discussion, the government can limit it to that. And so you could imagine politicians saying no off-topic comments. Yeah. Um, that's and content uh, neutral. Content neutral, but they'd have to apply it in a viewpoint neutral way. Yeah, which is a trick. <laughs> which is a trick because I, you know, the reason that politicians seem to block people is not because they're like looking at all of the tweets on their on their timeline and saying this violates a policy and this doesn't. Usually, what happens is, is they say that tweet annoys me. Do I have a basis for blocking it? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's classic viewpoint discrimination. Yeah. They can't do that. Um, but I think that's what the next wave of litigation will be about. Assuming the Supreme Court accepts the rulings that have now come out of the Second and the Fourth Circuits, um, then I think the next wave will be about, well, what are reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on a, on a forum like Twitter or Facebook? I'm very curious, as far as discovery in this case went, uh, were you able to see just how much his communications team dictates what he does on Twitter? Because that's a question that <laughs> yeah. a lot of us have. Is, like, is this just him firing off tweets or is there some sort of strategy behind this? And I imagine in discovery, if the argument is that this is an arm of the government and the government is helping him with this account, then yeah. it's something well, you, you I, get. I, I hate to disappoint. We, we did not go through the discovery in the case. We, um, we were contemplating discovery. And uh, before we had an opportunity to brief the, the first motion that we wanted to file, the court held a status conference. Um, and the judge, uh, Naomi Buckwald, suggested to the parties that we look for a way of coming up with a stipulated set of facts to avoid discovery. the complications of discovery because we would be taking discovery ultimately of the president and we'd have to deal with a whole slew of arguments the government would raise about whether the president can even be deposed or subject to discovery in a civil suit while he's still president. Yeah. And I, while the prospect of taking discovery against the president was an attractive one, <laughs> it would have been a distraction. From what, uh, just know, for historians' sake, <laughs> it's, it's true. It would have been, yeah, that, that's right. But we decided that it would have been a distraction from what the real principle at stake was, and probably an uphill battle. It would have been, it would have been an uphill battle, a long one, and one that would have um, distracted from what we thought was a clean message of the case. And the clean message of the case was: when politicians go online, the First Amendment follows, and that's mm-hmm. what we wanted the case to focus on. And we didn't want to get, uh, you know, uh, sidetracked by a months-long process of deciding whether we could, you know, uh, take discovery against the president. And uh, to our surprise, the government was willing to stipulate to all the facts that we thought were essential Necessary. to our claim. Yeah. You know, and the, the key one, uh, the, the, the key facts that they stipulated to were that uh, he blocked all of these individuals shortly after 
they criticized him, and he didn't contest that he blocked them on the basis of their viewpoint. Um, and that's the kind of core core claim at, you know, yeah. at the heart of the case. Yeah. So he had this Twitter account before he became president. That's right. And I hate to make you opine on hypotheticals, but let's say, for example, that he is uh, operating the Twitter account, using the Twitter account, but all he's posting is pictures of, of Melania and his kids and that he's not actually even following anyone. He's using it as a one-way street of communication. He has, he has, he's following zero people, but he's followed by 63 million. Yeah. Presumably in that case, it, it wouldn't satisfy two of the, the facts that are essential for the First Amendment claim to be valid, which is that he's using, it's a state account and you know he's, he's not operating it. His staff isn't operating it. He's not making policy pronouncements. And also, he's not following anyone, so it's not interactive. I think the my, my instinct is that the following is less relevant than the other two, and I think the mm-hmm. other two would be dispositive if he didn't use it in a way that reflected, you know, that, that suggested he thought of it as a tool of governance. Essentially, mm-hmm. then it wouldn't be state action. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm less I'm less sure about the following because Twitter allows all that interaction, whether or not you're following people, and each of his tweets gets you know ten thousand or more comments yeah i mean you know they generate these enormous uh, volumes of, of communications and uh you know maybe many of those people are following the president i'm sure um many of them are following the president but he's certainly not following all those people yeah right? he, he follows a relatively small number of people compared to but he does it you know and he as far as facts in the case go he does respond to people periodically he does yeah he, re- he retweets <laughs> people know. he responds yeah. i don't know how you sort through your responses and find that one person that you want to respond to, but I th- that's I think why the, he has a staff. I, I think the re- yeah, there, he has a staff, and I think the reality is that he, um, you know, he, he does what most people do who have Twitter feeds. They look at the top of their comments and they mm-hmm. see you know what the most popular ones are, and those are the people he blocked when he had critics who were at the very top. He blocked them, and you know the seven plaintiffs who we represent were all, were all people who they tended to have verified accounts and were very popular on Twitter. And so when they tweeted something critical of the president, it jumped to the top of his of his comment thread. Yeah. Now, here's the other interesting fact that we got through the stipulation. Uh, the president stipulated that it was the president himself doing the blocking, <laughs> which is just yeah. a surprising fact for history. Yeah. So to close out here, what's the next step? Uh, do we know if the government is going to appeal this to the Supreme Court? We don't know yet. They, you know, they have 45 days from the Second Circuit's ruling to decide whether which was to— on, like, what, July 9th or so? Uh, that's right, for uh, to decide whether to petition for rehearing in the Second Circuit, and then 90 days for um, uh, for the Supreme Court review. Mm-hmm. So uh, we still have, a, you know, another two, two months before we really know what's going to happen next. Yeah, so we'll stay tuned. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, been on it for at it for about 45 minutes now and i think i should let you go i hope to have you on again soon thanks for having me that was knight first amendment institute litigation director alex abdo to learn more about alex and the institute's work you can visit knightcolumbia.org that is k-n-i-g-h-t columbia.org as a reminder a video version of my interview with alex can be found on fire's youtube channel youtube.com slash thefireorg. And this podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. 
We can get feedback by emailing us at, so to speak, at thefire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks again for listening. 